1: Bring in show music, please.
0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Merck's COVID pill heading to the FDA for emergency approval.
1: It sings oral antiviral medicine. How awesome would that be?
0: Crude oil prices rising and the global energy crisis is coming for Washington. IHS market vice chair and author Dan Jurgen.
2: We're gonna start to see more political heat in this country. Prices at the pump may go from 325 to 350 and those are sensitive prices
3: for politicians.
0: And biotech's biggest breakthrough, what the pandemic's innovation has done for the rest of medicine with Dr. Christiana Barden.
3: MRNA, as you know, has the basis of our vaccine technology. And I jokingly say this industry literally just saved the world with mrna
0: those stories plus southwest airlines can't even get to the tarmac and william shatner heading up to space at 90 90
1: that's the new 60 three, two,
0: it's monday october 11th 2021 squawk pod begins right now
1: stand you by in three two one cue please
4: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is out today, but it's Monday, and uh, we're ready to go.
1: Breaking news, Merck says it has submitted its application to the FDA for emergency use. Just, uh, it sings, oral antiviral medicine to treat mild to moderate COVID-19. I mean, how awesome would that be? Phase three data for the drug Molnupiravir showed a 50% reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death. The drug can be taken by patients at home shortly after a COVID diagnosis. It inhibits replication of the virus. It's been shown to be active against the most common COVID uh, variants. We'll also talk to Dr. Christiana uh, Barden, who has been a speaker at some of our conferences, Back, This lady, (laughs) man, uh, MIT undergrad. Uh, I'm going to talk, and so... Get ready. I'm going to talk to her about which department. She has a a master's and a a bachelor there. Then a uh, Harvard MD and like summa cum laude or something. And then uh, an MBA from Harvard too. So she's heading up a big uh, biotech uh, fund. NPM founded the company that that, uh, does this kind of thing. She knows all about this stuff too. We'll talk about it. But what I was saying that I was getting to was who slowed Merck's covid remedy this is really interesting so there was a whistleblower that got the full backing of a lot of people that now have some egg on their face i would say Uh, Rick, rick bright who was at barda the biomedical advanced research and development authority and they said that this was being rushed through by the Trump administration because of a relationship they had with a guy down at Emory. Remember, we heard about Ridgeback and it's down at Emory University and, and the, the hedge fund people that favor. And it was all that. So they were accusing this of being for profit. And, and my favorite line is from Senator Elizabeth Warren, who tweeted in May, the Trump administration ignored warnings from Dr. Rick Bright, the country's top vaccine scientist, then fired him after he wouldn't go along with the president's reckless push for a miracle cure for COVID. You know what that miracle cure was? This drug? This drug. Wow. Wow. So uh, anyway, it's it's interesting. It's just in the journal, but it all comes home to kind of roost. Now now this guy works. It was a point about uh, President Biden and his back in in government. Rick Bright. The officials who backed bolnapirivir can now claim vindication, the journal says, but it's too late for the thousands of Americans who already died of covid-19, because this might have been ready a lot earlier. Wow. I did not know this. I'm excited to, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe she's in law school now or something. You know, she doesn't have one of (laughs) next degree. She doesn't have one of uh, one of those degrees. But it's interesting. I I did a little research on her. She um, she's going to talk to us about this fund, 800, one of the big largest ever raised, 850 million for biotech. It's hot, obviously, uh, right now with all the messenger RNA vaccine. Uh, But she points out all these philanthropists like I don't know, Sean Parker, they're all throwing money at biotech, and they all want to win Nobel Prizes. And her point was, you know, it might be better to find some development stage companies that have drugs that they're testing and see whether they work and commercialize these and, you know, take it, you know, maybe hit singles and doubles, not necessarily try and hit New a home run. New uses
4: for existing drugs, you mean? Like, uh, not necessarily a drug existing,
1: over- but, but, but things that you could commercialize in the next two, three, four, five years instead of uh, you know, um, I don't know, take your pick. No, I do D know of a lot of, a lot of places cell. where they are
4: trying to find existing drugs that might work on, on things that you haven't thought of or trying them before. And
1: develop, you know, middle development that are already, you know, they're not, you know, still at the lab bench, just doing the basic science to try to figure but stuff, out. But stuff that's already but been
4: approved by the FDA for one use, you might find that it works well for something true. else. And, and there are now, because of... The different screens that you can do because of technology. There are lots of people who are trying to work and find a drug that might work for an existing for an existing drug that might work uh, under different label use. I yeah. might
1: have read a little bit too much because it's a it's a the 850 million is going to focus on cancer, and you know with all the excitement about messenger RNA now because of the the uh, you know, Pfizer and the uh, and the Moderna drugs, which are really huge. Though, miracle, those, miracle vaccines right. and, and, and it's, based on 20 years of work right. to, to, get this, to get this. But it might to work, you know, our messenger RNA might work for a lot of things, and yeah. apparently, I don't know, I, I looked at it a little bit too much. If you can get it to exist in a circular form, it might be more stable, and uh, people's eyes are going to glaze over when I'm talking to this uh, this doctor when she's on. So just be forewarned. So be ready. Be warned. Right. Drink some coffee.
4: Well, and Get ready for a deep dive. And by the way, we have viewers who do appreciate deep dives. So I
1: think you're right. Southwest Airlines canceled more than 1,800 flights over the weekend, citing a combination of bad weather and short staffing. The airline also blamed air traffic control issues. That's a favorite uh, whenever I've been delayed. But the FAA said there were no such issues. That's usually the case, too. Sort of like the go-to excuse uh, because other airlines were unaffected. Hmm. The cancellations come amid concern, though, over vaccination requirements. On Friday, the Southwest Pilots Union asked a court to temporarily block the company from enforcing the federal mandate. The union then shot down rumors that pilots were calling out sick in protest of the mandate and said that there were, in their words, no official or unofficial job actions. But I don't know what they the story behind the story is uh, on this, Becky. But I read uh... a lot on
4: this because this is really fishy. If you look at the number of cancellations, it was 1,800 and you know just north of 25, maybe 1,825 flights that were canceled between Saturday and Sunday. That's 28 percent of Southwest's schedule. AMR had 63 flights canceled because of that. That's two percent of their schedule. Spirit Airlines had 32 flights canceled. That's four percent of their schedule. And again, those were because of the ATA issues and the weather issues. ATA said there were no issues with air traffic control after, um, I'm sorry, ATC, Air Traffic Control, said there were no issues after Friday afternoon. The union came out with these very strong statements saying it wasn't that. But Gary Kelly just said on October 4th of last week that they would be going along with the vaccine mandate. It it brought a lot of ire from the pilots union there because they said they weren't consulted on that. Um, And this happens to be a holiday weekend. So by shutting down those flights on Saturday and Sunday, not having the staffing ready to go, whoever's fault this was, it did have an, uh, an, an inordinate impact just because it's the holiday weekend.
1: It's just a real miserable situation for, for people that are trying to get somewhere, too. Anytime I've been canceled, I can remember, and I've told this story to my, my wife and kids recently, you know, I, I, back in college, I wanted to come home, big Christmas things planned. And it just it didn't happen. And it's like, you can't believe it. I was in Denver. I was stuck and had to stay in a hotel. And, and you're just stuck and you just want to be there so badly. Yeah. And it's not going to happen for you. And because of, of this. And so you take eighteen hundred flights times, however many people are on there that had places where they really, for whatever reason, needed to be there. It's really not good. But it, you know what? It drives home the point that like a thousand miles is a long way, it, it, and it, it, we we take it for granted. We walk on the plane, or we walk through one door, you know, in one place, and then you sit on the plane for a while. Then you walk out the door, and oh my God, it's almost like time travel. Here you are <laughs> in another place. You're a thousand miles from where you were, and everything. And, and we take it for granted like it's easy. Try driving, or try you know, planes, trains, and automobiles. That's why they made that, that great movie with, with the great, of people
4: have suffered through great it.
1: John Candy to try to get somewhere. When you're talking a 1,000 miles, that's not like, like breaking sticks. It's no,
4: And it's a bigger deal for Southwest, too, because they don't have the same agreements with other airlines to say if we cancel flights, you'll pick up some of our extra they passengers. Don't? Well, they don't. So Think
1: how many people just were like, are you kidding me? Right. Oh, my daughter's wedding? No problem. I mean, how many different things were there where, you know, what do you do? Displace 300 other people that are gonna do something? It's really, really difficult. Wouldn't be surprised if it has something to do with what, what you were saying. They, of course, the, pilots union, the unions wouldn't want to cop to that, would they? If it well, was because of the Well, it would not like make them very flu. popular. In
4: fact, airline, the Southwest Airline Pilots Association said, no, this is because of poor planning from the company and poor staffing on their part, so.
1: It, Southwest doesn't get a lot of bad PR. That's uh, this is, uh, unusual. William Shatner, the trip to the edge of space. We'll have to wait another day. Waited a while, though. Blue Origin said high winds have postponed tomorrow's launch to Wednesday. Shatner, at age 90, will become the oldest person to travel to space. He originated the role of James C. Yeah, 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 we know that. James C. Kirk on Star Trek in 1966. Uh, I said, as I said, Becky, 90, that's the new 60. And I was joking. <laughs> I said, it's bad news for Andrew because that means 65 is the new 35? So uh, I You're at least pretty good, are you? Uh, if he's 90 and going to space, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. yeah, I'm feeling pretty young. I have three idols now. I got him because he's 90. I got Grassley. You see, Grassley's running for another six-year term. I did. Yeah. <laughs> he's 89, and he announced it while he was uh, on one of his morning, morning 5 a.m. Right? Five mile runs right. that he that gets up.
4: Constituents at, can come along if they show up and want to go on the run with him. People yeah. from back, back home.
1: And then my third, of course, Clint. Ninety one.
4: I was going to guess that it was
1: Clint. Of course, was, it's Clint. Yeah. Still punching people out in his movies. You know, people are driving a truck around, running around with this you kid. Ninety one. You forgot 91. about Buzz Aldrin. Huh? You forgot yeah, about Buzz, Buzz Aldrin, who also punches who out. Who punched, <laughs> also punched someone out who said you really didn't land on the moon. Right. It's like, really? Don't you think I'd know it's like us with taxes. Wouldn't we know what we what our tax rates are, Becky? Wouldn't we know that when people tell us? We're, we're, yeah, you would okay. think we'd know.
0: Coming up on Squawk Pod, crude oil over $80 a barrel. The geopolitics behind today's energy price spike with commodities expert Dan Jurgen.
2: This is an energy crisis, but a different kind of energy crisis because it's really led by natural gas and coal and a shortfall in wind generation in Europe.
0: Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with p a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod.
1: Awesome, Becky. Thank you.
4: Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrews out today. The price of oil topping eighty dollars a barrel over the weekend and continuing to climb this morning. Check it out: WTI sitting just under eighty-two dollars. Joining us right now is Dan Jurgen. He is the vice chairman of IHS Market and the author of the new map: Energy Security and Clash of Nations. And Dan, uh, this is different than what we've seen recently. There's a whole new dynamic that's taking place here. Part of this is because the big oil companies aren't producing the same way that they were in the past. Part of this is because of our new reliance on uh, renewable energies and and some of those things haven't gone our way in terms of the wind not blowing the way it was anticipated. Um, What's happening?
2: Well, this is, uh, Becky, this is an energy crisis, but a different kind of energy crisis because it's really led by uh, natural gas and coal and a shortfall in wind generation in Europe. And so oil, those prices, as you said, breaking $80 a barrel are really the, the tail that's uh, being wagged by the dog, which are these other factors. And this all really started in, in China, which is the workshop of the world was going to overdrive and it's short of coal. They're rationing electricity right now. So India's short of coal. So this is um, and this is, of course, going to affect the overall economy.
4: What, uh, what, what's going to happen in response? What are the after effects of this?
2: One of the reasons you're seeing those prices shoot up on oil uh, is because oil is being substituted for natural gas and electric generation in Europe uh, and in, uh, in China. I think what you're going to see, ultimately what you'll see is what you're seeing in China. They're rationing electricity. Factories won't operate. We've seen factories slow, shut down in, in the UK. Of course, they also have a gasoline shortage in the UK. And all of this will ultimately take a, a toll on economic growth. We've lo- at IHS, we've lowered our projections for U.S. growth uh, for this year because of energy and, of course, the supply chain problems. But uh, if this winter's cold, this problem gets not better, but it gets worse.
4: And what's the solution? I mean, what are we looking at a year from now, Dan? Is there going to be more exploration, more put into this, more not?
2: Yeah, I, I think this is going to require, particularly what's happening in Europe on the eve of the Glasgow Climate Summit, the UN Climate Summit, will require a rethink about investment. I mean, I, I looked, uh, checked, European gas, domestic gas production within Europe is down uh, almost 20%. And so I think there's a question of whether there's underinvestment in the conventional resources while waiting for these other resources to, 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 uh, to develop. And I think it also points out that fundamental thing about electricity above everything else is you need reliability.
4: Is this by design? I mean, that that production is down because a lot of places it's it's it's, you know, not ESG friendly. It is not the way of the future. We've we've kind of pushed even shareholders have pushed those big oil companies to say we don't want you producing more. Certainly been the case in Europe, too. Is there a reversal of that or does the higher prices resolve that or is it just not worth it?
2: I think what's going to happen is that there will be a review and people will look at, you know, the the pressure on companies is to be very disciplined in investment. And uh, the message in Europe is uh, don't really invest in conventional resources. But I think there have to be a a uh, reset or rethink, at least, and the governments in Europe will have to do that. Obviously, um, uh, it's the whole system. There's no extra coal uh, supplies anywhere in the world right now. And the LNG market is absolutely taut. So you just have very tight markets right now. And I think there are lessons to be learned from this uh, as we go through an energy transition and the timing of an energy transition.
4: I mean, we're, we're getting back to the point where this is a security risk for different nations, I would think, too, if you've got Vladimir Putin deciding whether or not to send more natural gas your way.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's it. Clearly, this highlights the Russian uh, issues, and uh, you know what's in Putin's mind. None of us know, but even Russia is worried. Their 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 inventories of natural gas for the winter are low, and uh, and but they'll make some more gas available. But they also have to worry about their own winter. And here in the United States, natural gas prices has doubled because there's the, the same sh- sh- not enough coal capacity. Uh, uh, to uh, deal with it and inventories of natural gas in the United States are low markets will respond but um, this is one one case where weather is very important and those signals from oil prices are uh, you're going to start to see we're going to start to see more political heat in this country of course in reaction to it because it means prices at the pump may go from 325 to 350. And uh, those are sensitive prices for politicians.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, we've been talking for over a decade about how OPEC wasn't really all that important anymore, that they couldn't control things because we were producing so much oil and gas here in this country. Um, but we've, we've seen a reduction in that as well and, and a sale of some of the shale purchases. You're not going to see the same quick switch where you can flip a switch again and turn all those wells back on and, and produce more quickly just because the price of oil has gone up. How, how has that changed?
2: We see the increase coming from the private companies that don't have to answer to institutional investors, (laughs) but the public companies are being very cautious. Uh, uh, Capital discipline is still the mantra. Returning money to investors is still their mantra. So we're going to see an uptick in U.S. shale, but it's not going to be like those days when we saw vast increases. Next year, we could see some substantial uh, increases, but uh, that capital discipline is still very much in the minds of the public companies.
4: So, Dan, what's your prediction about where prices go from here over the next few months?
2: Well, it really requires predicting the weather and actually predicting the wind in uh, offshore of Europe, which because uh, uh, Germany and England depend so much on wind-generated offshore electricity. If it's, a cold, uh, if it's cold weather, we could see these kind of continued prices continue uh, to go up. I mean, LNG prices are six or seven times higher landing in Europe than normal. Coal prices are three times normal. However, once we get through the winter, I see a different picture. And part of what will make a difference here is what happens to economic growth. We've lowered our projections for uh, US and global economic growth because of this and the supply chain problems. So that will be the other way this will get resolved. So it's the next couple of months. (laughs) That's
4: getting caught between a rock and a hard place. You're either going to deal with crippling energy prices or you won't because there's a recession that's come about.
2: Right. Or slower growth.
4: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Dan, thank you. Always good to see you. And I, I have the feeling we're going to need to have you back very soon to talk more about this.
2: Thanks a lot. See you soon. Bye bye. Cheese
0: will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, breakthroughs in bio. One of the world's largest biotech investment funds keeps growing. Doctor slash investor, Christiana Barden on the innovation still to come.
3: Well, you know, right now we're really in the midst of a revolution coming out of the genome sequencing revolution in 2000. You know, in 2000, we sequenced the first human genome It cost probably, you know, $1.4 billion. And now we can sequence every patient for probably dollars.
0: Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm producer Katie Kramer, and we're headed back to the lab with Joe and Becky.
1: Biotech's been one of the busiest sectors for IPOs this year, over 80 debuts. It's been a busy area for private investment as well. One of the sector's largest investment firms, MPM Capital just raised $850 million for its second Oncology Impact Fund. Joining us now, uh, Dr. Christiana Barden, co-managing partner of MPM's BioImpact, Capital, you got to bear with me, uh, Doctor. For saying, were you were you at MIT? Were you uh, biology department?
3: No, actually, I was an electrical engineer, if you can believe it.
1: But not not strictly biology. I was just looking through the faculty; they're all still there. Nancy Hopkins, Bob Horvitz, um, Phil Sharp, uh, Bob Weinberg. These are I went. I did that uh, that as well. So we. we uh, I was excited to have you on. I was kidding around. I said, well, then you went to get your, you know, your MD at Harvard and then your MBA at Harvard. And now I guess you're in law school or something. I don't know. You've still got more things to conquer. Maybe not.
3: Many more things to conquer. That's for sure. (laughs)
1: Um, You have shepherded more than 100 companies through IPOs uh, and received FDA approval for 53 drugs. Uh, Becky and I were talking earlier about how that works. I mentioned that uh, you have told some philanthropists, maybe not try to win a Nobel Prize and hit a home run, but maybe try to get some drugs actually through FDA approval. That may be the way to approach this, this business?
3: No, the way we think about it is, look, in biotech, the only way to really create value is to get drugs successfully through the clinical trial and regulatory process. Ultimately, you need to create a drug that's going to get to patients and transform their lives. So, you know, we're really proud of our financial metrics of all the funds and investments that we've made, but ultimately the proof, the real proof is in the pudding, which is how many drugs did you create that actually got to patients and transformed their lives? So, you know, the statistic we're most proud of is that our companies that we started at MVM have created over 50 drugs in history, one of which was actually one of the largest in the industry um, for the treatment of hepatitis C. So that's really the ultimate goal of this industry.
1: We're talking about oncology now, and that, that's the focus. Uh, and everybody, you know, gets a buzzword, so we all know about mRNA um, drugs. I don't. I mean, it's obviously, if you've taken any biology, you know, mRNA is sort of important just for everything. So uh, now it does seem to have some, both some, uh, some therapeutic uses potentially even for cancer. Is that going to be part of what you're looking for with this 850 million? What, what are the most exciting avenues to, to currently uh, in terms of treating cancer?
3: Well, you know, right now we're really in the midst of, I would say, a, a revolution coming out of the genome sequencing revolution in 2000. You know, in 2000, we sequenced the first human genome. It cost probably, you know, $1.4 billion. And now we can sequence every patient for probably $1.4,000 COGS. And so from that perspective, we really actually, one, know a lot more information about all the diseases that affect us and uh, like cancer and other areas. And two, we can also use the genetic tools that we have to create new therapeutics. So one of those classes is definitely mRNA. Um, mRNA, as you know, has the basis of our vaccine technology. One of the vaccine technologies, which has really transformed the outcome of COVID. And I jokingly say this industry literally just saved the world with mRNA. And so over the next 20 years, I think we can use mRNA for lots of other applications, either to make protein or inhibit the production of proteins. And we're going to see applications in that for a lot of different disease areas, including oncology.
1: So how do things come to you? And, and do you still live in, are you in Chestnut Hill? You're, you're in the, the Cambridge area. You spent, I was looking at how much time you must have spent in Cambridge. Anyway, that, that, that's where a lot of these startups are, are, are at this point, I would say. Still coming out of MIT and Harvard and I guess on the West Coast as well. Is that where you beat the bushes for new technologies, new companies?
3: Yeah, it turns out actually Boston has become the epicenter of biotech right now. And there's a few reasons for that. One is obviously the great uh, academic centers we have with MIT and Harvard, but two is really the massive inflow of pharma R&D facilities into Boston. So we've seen Novartis, we've seen Sanofi, we've seen Pfizer um, come into Boston with big research laboratories. And that's really transformed the environment within Boston biotech. And that's why I think we're really now the hub of the world. But of course we have the additional centers out of San Francisco, San Diego, And uh, now emerging biotech centers outside of that as well, such as, you know, Chapel Hill.
1: Chapel Hill, sure. The research triangle, I guess, maybe. Yep. You mentioned private company. It it is a public private partnership. I can remember that you have to try to get grants from the National Science Foundation or or from all these. I I mean, their basic science is important. Government can seed a lot of of, uh, advances in this area but you mentioned the private sector. Is it 50-50? What do you think?
3: Yeah. So I would say when you think about the biotech innovation, you know, if you start really at chapter one on the first page, ultimately it comes from basic science research that's funded, you know, by the government, by the NIH, et cetera. And so that's really where it starts. And in fact, that, you know, that's why we want to encourage that and support that. That's where the next generation of biotech companies are going to come from. So 10 years down the road, those discoveries are being made right now in laboratories. And so we are really uh, focused on making sure that next generation research continues. It's super important, for example, that we get good funding for these public agencies on an ongoing basis, Um, hopefully funding uh, without too much conflict out of politically because it's so important for so many applications.
4: Dr. Barton, just your point of needing to get these drugs through the FDA process, I mean, that's not easy. And my guess is once you figure out how to do it, you have some sort of a recipe, some sort of a plan, a playbook for how companies can do that. Is that the case? And has it gotten more difficult to get
3: things through the FDA or easier? What what would you say to that? Well, first of all, I'd like to say the modern FDA agency really started with the Dufa legislation years ago. And that really provided the infrastructure and the financing that the agency needs to run effectively. And the agency is working incredibly effectively. As you saw with COVID, when, we, when drugs were submitted to the FDA, we got pretty quick. I don't think you can get any quicker. That was light speed for regulatory um, actions. You know, So the modern agency is working very productively and collaboratively with the industry. Now, one thing to remember, that doesn't mean we're lowering the bar. Right. It really means we're working together. And so when the FDA says, I need X, I need X formatted in this manner, I need data Y, I need you to make sure that the trials run like this with this many patients and this outcome, that type of communication is what we have right now with the industry and FDA to make sure that our drugs can efficiently get through that process. So I think the FDA is working very well and effectively with the industry to get life-saving drugs to patients as quickly as possible,
1: Doctor. Thank you. It's a pleasure having you on. I know you've, you've done some some work with our conferences, et, et cetera. It's uh, it's it's great to uh, great to have you, and we can use you as a resource hopefully in the future at some point.
3: Great, well, nice you. to be on. Thanks so much. Have a great day.
1: You're welcome.
0: And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC. Yeah, it's early at 6 Eastern.
1: Be warned drink some coffee
0: but you can listen to this podcast anytime for free follow squawk pod on apple podcasts or your platform of choice and get us in your feed every day thanks for being here we'll meet you back here tomorrow
1: we are clear thanks guys
0: this podcast is supported by fedex dear small and medium businesses